1: And it's funny because I didn't go there to study food. That was the last thing on my mind. I wanted to understand suburban development and the migration process. And it was in the everyday life activities that I was documenting in my field notes where food kept arising.
0: I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Today, we'll explore how Central Florida became a hotbed of Latino food businesses and the cultural mashups that followed. In the 1970s and 80s, marketing tactics by housing developers led to an influx of Puerto Ricans to Orlando. What followed was a proliferation of restaurants, supermarkets, and small food businesses targeting Latinos in Central Florida. I recently spoke with Dr. Simone de She's a cultural anthropologist and professor at the University of Mississippi. She's also the author of Latino Orlando, Suburban Transformation and Racial Conflict.
1: At the time, I was actually living in East Harlem, completing my Ph.D. at Rutgers University. And my intention was to study and do my Ph.D. dissertation about Puerto Ricans in New York City. I lived in that community, my family's from that community, and there was a lot of change going on in what they called Spanish Harlem. And Puerto Ricans were leaving in large numbers. There was urban revitalization going on. And I started looking at the numbers, just US census data, things that were being published. And I realized Puerto Ricans were going south and they were going to Orlando. So I followed the migration south and decided I would do my field work in Orlando. So the numbers, it was the numbers. It was, you know, it it clearly showed this is where Puerto Ricans are migrating from New York and from the island to Orlando. Wow. Well, some of them ended up in my house
0: because my husband's Puerto Rican, which means my kids are Puerto Rican. And his family, his extended family came from the island to Orlando. So do you know why?
1: There were a lot of different factors, and I started doing research on the ground in 2010. But I started doing archival research before that, trying to go back to the 70s and 80s, and that's when I found out about the community where I focused uh, the book, Buena Ventura Lakes. It's in Osceola County, and there were very deliberate marketing attempts. I mean, you had developers who had connections with real estate agencies on the island, New York City. Uh, they were offering, you know, a free stay if you would come look at these homes. So there was that dream of, of homeownership, I think, early on that brought people. And there were other push-pull factors that people like to talk about. Chain migration, just the fact that there were already social networks there. And so people started to come. Some people talk about it like a frontier. You know, New York was already expensive, it was overpriced. Um, Here you could have the suburban lifestyle with, you know, the front lawn and the two car garage. So there was a lot of opportunity that I think people saw. That does make sense.
0: Now, It's called Latino Orlando. I know some people call themselves Latinx or Hispanic. Do you have any thoughts on all these different terms?
1: Yeah, it's always complicated deciding what to use. And a lot of the time I use Hispanic, but what I try and do as an anthropologist, I use the terms that the people I interview choose to use, so how they identify. So for instance, while I was writing and doing my research, Latinx as a term wasn't even being used in conversation. Uh, These folks didn't even use Latin or Latina, they refer to themselves as Hispanic. So I have to use both terms in the book, Hispanic and Latino or Latina, uh, because that's how people identify themselves. So I try and be, I want to be true to them and their identities as they see it.
0: Yeah. It's always evolving. How does the Latino influence present itself in Orlando? And this is a food podcast. So I'm thinking in terms of food,
1: what did you find? Yeah. And it's funny because I didn't go there to study food. That was the last thing on my mind. Uh, I wanted to understand suburban development and the migration process. And it was in the everyday life activities that I was documenting in my field notes where food kept arising as a change in the landscape. So, for example, uh, I had one person I interviewed and she said, you know, when I first moved here in the 80s, uh, you know, I had to drive 30 minutes to get platanos, sweet plantains. And she said, all of a sudden, you know, as time progressed, there was the international aisle in the larger supermarket. And that was our space. And then all of a sudden there were supermarkets that were dedicated to the Latino population. I remember when I was doing field work, there was the public sabor. So... It was, you know, part of the Publix chain, but they would have several brands, for example, uh, from Latin America, not just one brand. The entire supermarket catered to the population.
0: Wait, so Publix <laughs> has these like secret Latino targeted supermarkets?
1: I guess I'm not. The- <laughs> I don't think they're in exist. I don't know that it's still there. There was one at Buenaventura Lakes in that suburban community and it was called Public Sabor. Um, I talk about it in my, in my book because I had uh, people I, I spoke with informally that had spoken about the presence of this supermarket. It had replaced, I think, an Albertsons or another supermarket that was there. There were bilingual folks and sometimes individuals that primarily spoke to you in Spanish. I remember one gentleman telling me his branded cheese got replaced and there were several Latin American brands that were now available. So there was this transformation that took place, but they realized, you know, This is a community with a concentration of Latinos. The population was over 60% Latino. So, you know, it, it made sense. I don't know if it's still in existence after the pandemic and whatnot. But at the time, 2010 to 2013, it was a happening place. They had a cafe. You could get Cuban coffee. It was, you know, it was wonderful. Salsa music played, things like that. And there were other supermarkets like that where they catered. You could tell in terms of what they stocked in the aisles. It wasn't just one brand. You weren't limited to just one section in a supermarket.
0: I had no idea. So clearly I'm not part of the cool club. So (laughs) these would have been mainstream or probably white-owned supermarkets catering to Latinos versus, you know,
1: for us by us type supermarkets. There were both. Yeah, I would I would imagine they were both. There certainly were supermarkets I encountered that were I think Bravo might have been one. That was from New York. I think they might have been Dominican owned. I'm not sure. And there were bodegas, little stores that would have maybe a back section where you could get hot food, but they also sold, you know, different products from Latin America, Goya brand, you know, kind of a convenience store. So there were places certainly owned by folks that were either foreign born or second generation Latinos. But yeah, when I saw Public Sabor, that was a very unique case where I realized they're part of a larger chain in Florida. So was another one that folks were talking about. uh, And they were in South Florida, I believe Cuban owned, you know, chain quite a few. And then they opened a few uh, chains in Orlando. So again, realizing there was a need.
0: Wow. Now, what about the Latino influence on something like restaurants?
1: Oh my, it was amazing. The change to the landscape. So you could drive and you could go within a suburb to one of these commercial strip malls and you would just see with the signage, for example, that these were restaurants that were not only Puerto Rican, uh, but you could get arepas or you could get churros. Like there was just such variety in terms of what you saw. The thing that really struck me though, was how you would see advertisements for the food in informal ways. So... On like a Saturday or Sunday, there were yard sales, garage sales, but you would see like a poster board and it would be advertising acapurias. So, you know, uh, a fritter or uh, pinchos, which are like uh, kebabs. Yep. So you would see them sold from people's front lawn as you're driving, you know, down the street of suburban Osceola County. And you feel that that Latinization because that food, you know, that's entrepreneurship right there. But also the food becomes available to a larger public in these really informal ways.
0: For sure. My husband actually sold pinchos in college in front of his
1: barbershop. (laughs) <laughs> okay. okay, that speaks to it. That's exactly right. And if you start seeing that in mass, what you're, you know, I remember seeing just parking lots, you know, where people are grilling and, and selling pinchos. You see enough of them, you start to feel the Latinization and and that influence on the landscape and on the foodways, for sure. I think that
0: is, that is so fun. Okay, so Southern foodways, I think of, you know, maybe fried chicken or mac and cheese or, I don't know, coleslaw, sweet tea, the things that people think of as Southern food, right. Bar- barbecue. Did the Latin influence sort of infect that way
1: of eating as well? I guess when I was in Orlando, when I was in Winter Ventura Lakes, Osceola County, I didn't see the same foods that I see in Mississippi where I live now, where now it's very much... You have soul food, you have your barbecue that's very dominant. But you know what? Some folks will say you go down a commercial strip and there's just as many Mexican restaurants as there are barbecue joints. So you do see a plethora of restaurants down here, you know, Memphis, Tennessee, Mississippi. I see a lot more Mexican restaurants because that's the population that's here in terms of the numbers. Um, Orlando, same thing. You would see a lot of restaurants concentrated, but I wouldn't see, at least in the areas that were concentrated with Puerto Ricans, as much influence of, say, soul food or what you think of as your your southern comfort foods. Okay. Not to say the second and third generation has not been influenced, because there's a difference there. There's generational differences.
0: That's a very good point. And I know there are even like, um, halal taco fusion spots in oh, yeah.
1: Orlando.
0: And that's a, that's a really good point about, um, the younger generations. I did want to ask you how the influence presents itself differently in different parts of the South. You sort of touched on that. Does the influence go both ways? Have you seen Southern culture influence the Latino culture? Obviously we're making
1: generalizations, but have you noticed yeah. that as well? Yeah. I mean, I see it in Mississippi where I go to restaurants and it's not that the food is, you know, people talk about authenticity and and that's so vague, what is really authentic, but I can see, I mean, just in the option of say burritos or tacos, you can get barbecue in it. Um, sometimes it's crawfish. So there's been what we call cultural hybridization in anthropology where, you know, they've taken some of the tastes, of local folks and adapted to those tastes. So you have these fusions that are really exciting and eclectic. So yes, there's definitely been influenced both ways. I'm seeing it a lot in Mexican restaurants in particular and, and fusion and the blending of ingredients, local ingredients being used and flavors um, by folks, but still, you know, it's, it's tacos or it's, tortas but again what you're getting as the meat is not your traditional carnitas or al pastor they they have a new take on it all kinds of fusion i'm saying take support for the zest
0: podcast comes from seitenbacher brand natural foods like muesli cereals oils oatmeal energy bars gluten-free fruit gummies for the kids organic coffee and more available in supermarkets health food stores or online at
1: seitenbacher.com please
0: That is so fun. I think that's very exciting. With your sort of anthropological viewpoint, do you see that most people are happy about these influences? Are they resistant?
1: Um, It depends. I remember in Orlando, I feel like folks were a little bit more hesitant only because the demographic change was so dramatic where folks went from being the majority in a community that was predominantly white to becoming the minority Um, and the food waste changing with that. So your favorite restaurant closes down, you know, your supermarket uh, is replaced, your favorite brand of cheese. It's like the everyday little things that I think folks felt the most and responded to. So I felt a little resistance in Orlando and one of Ventura Lakes talking to some folks, but it's been the complete opposite in Memphis, Tennessee, where I'm doing current research, where there's been attempts to even like brand commercial areas as like, you know, the international district, because there are so many places that are owned and are restaurants uh, or markets that are owned by folks from different parts of the world. So it's this fusion taking place in terms of availability. And I'm thinking food from Colombia, food from Mexico. It's just an array of places. And again, that's been embraced. So I think it's place specific. It depends. It depends, you know, on intentionality. You know, is this sometimes marketable, Uh, which people might, you know, object to, but also, is it threatening? You know, am I? do I feel like I'm losing something with this new food coming in? Or am I gaining something? And I hope people will look at it in that way. You know, I'm getting the opportunity to try food from Puerto Rico and Colombia and Guatemala. You know, and some people are embracing that, that cultural diversity and the opportunity. Whereas others see it as, you know what, you're changing my neighborhood from what it used to be.
0: What are your thoughts on the international district or the international aisle of the supermarket. You know, I'm African-American. I have to buy my shampoo in the ethnic aisle, which I resent because to me, it's not ethnic. It's just my normal hair. So so do you have do you have any personal opinion on those types of labels? It's so hard because I'm
1: appreciative that they exist because otherwise I wouldn't be able to get my food. And I feel it in Mississippi. I mean, I go to Walmart, I go to Kroger, those are the supermarkets here, and they do have that little section. And that's where I go to get my Goya rice and my Goya beans. And everything is right there together in the same space. So I can see where it makes sense from making things easy for shoppers. You find everything you want in one space and place. I think it also speaks to we're not a large enough population just yet, or at least folks are not as interested in trying these foods where, you know, it can go next to my Goya tomato paste can go next to the ragu tomato sauce. (laughs) So, you know, it's not there yet. It's still going into a particular aisle and a section. So again, I, it doesn't make me feel a certain kind of way. I just, I'm appreciative of having it because I've lived in places where I can't get it at all and I have to order or have my family ship me, you know, my adobo and the things I want. So over time, you know, especially again, thinking Mississippi, certain parts. Yeah, when they have an international aisle, it shows me a little bit of progress compared to what, you know, it was before, where you just, folks from, for instance, the college town I work in talk about having to drive the hour plus to Memphis to get the ingredients they need. So again, if a supermarket is open to having an international aisle, it, it's a start in certain towns, again, small rural spaces. And that's probably how it started, you know, in places like Osceola County, whatever lakes, or maybe it was specialty stores you had to go to, but all of a sudden the population grows and you know what, you can make money if you're, you know, selling this in, in quantity because people want to buy the products that remind them of home. Mm,
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. So speaking of home, you touched on it at the beginning, but how did you get interested in this topic?
1: Um, My family. It was my family. Um, I'm from a family of migrants uh, in the sense that my mom and dad are both from East Harlem, New York, New York City, but my grandparents are from Puerto Rico uh, and from Haiti. So, you know, I, I got to see, I'm, you know, a generation that had a lot of privilege in terms of my parents already having to go through the process of adapting, assimilating, doing translation for their parents. You know, I didn't have to do that. So, but I got to hear those stories. I got to see and be raised by my grandparents. So I just became very interested in migration and the experience and in the communities. So when I lived in East Harlem, you know, you could see and feel the presence of Puerto Ricans, whether it was just flags or the music you heard walking down the street, you know, the cuchifritos, they call it where you could buy fried foods and all these other morsels of goodness that I can't get out here. But I was interested in in the kind of community spaces where you could get this food and and feel this, this sense of pride in community and and in your ethnic identity.
0: Yeah, if you're eating that food, like I, when you get together with the other people from your group, whatever your group is, and you eat the food of your group, you just feel like you're at home. I love that. Yes, 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 absolutely. So what do you think is next for the Orlando area or just the South in general in terms of Latin influence, particularly on the food?
1: I think it's only going to increase. And you know, I was looking at some of the most recent census data. Like I always go to the data because I'm like, okay, what's happening? And here we have a place like Memphis where... Over the decades, the population that identifies as white, it's decreased. The population even that identifies as African-American, you know, has stayed steady to decrease. But the foreign-born population, the Latino population in particular, steady increase, you know, into 2020 and beyond. So, again, it's you have more and more people moving to the South. That's been kind of the trend. Uh, there's opportunity I love it here. It's a wonderful space and place to live. There's opportunity. You get a lot for your money, the quality of life. So I only see more and more people coming here, especially because they have family and friends now, those social networks to bring them. So that only means there's going to be more desire, more need for these restaurants, for these markets, folks who are going to be very smart and be entrepreneurs and you know, who are going to sell food from their front lawn or from a parking lot in a commercial space. Nice. And is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you wanted to mention? I just hope people will embrace, you know, the exciting diversity that comes with food, you know, and it's just a start. There's so much more, you know, to get to know about a person's history and culture and experience. But food is something where people lean in, as opposed to saying we're going to talk about inequalities and discrimination. And, you know, the reality of a lot of that is going on in Orlando and where I am. But again, food is a way to begin those conversations, I think. For sure.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. You make me want to just drive around the neighborhood and and see what people are peddling.
1: You should on a weekend, Saturday or Sunday. (laughs) Definitely.
0: Definitely. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. No, you too. Take care. Thank you so much. Dr. Simone Delermé is a cultural anthropologist at the University of Mississippi and the author of Latino Orlando, Suburban Transformation and Racial Conflict. You can find her grandma Edith Delermé's recipe for coquito. It's like Puerto Rico's answer to eggnog. And it's on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Dalia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. We get help from Chandler Balcom, Hannah Abdel-Majid, John Vargas, and Mark Hayes. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2022.